welcome. You are listening to OPOD's Occupational Health Podcast. This is a podcast series by the Occupational Health Clinics for Ontario Workers, where we discuss the challenges of current and emerging trends in occupational health and offer effective prevention strategies to empower workers. Welcome to our first ever podcast from the desks of James Muccio and myself, Sonia Lau. We are both clinical occupational hygienists practicing in Ontario with the Occupational Health Clinics for Ontario Workers. James, I think we bring about 39 years experience. Am I right? Yeah, sounds about right. I've been with OCAL for about 15 years now. Right, and I've been practicing for about 24 years. So yes, together we bring you 39 years of experience in the field of occupational health. We are both certified industrial hygienists and certified registered safety professionals. We thought this topic would be of interest to folks who wish to peruse nail or hair salons during the pandemic and may want to know how to better protect themselves before engaging in the services. We also wanted to look through the lens of the employer and employees, as there's a lot of due diligence measures that need to be in place for small businesses. But first, James, have you ever used the services of nail salons? I have not. I mean, I know what they are. I've walked by them on the street and in the mall. You know, you look inside and you can see women getting their nails done. And so I I do know what they are. It's 2020, James. A lot of men do use the services. You should give it a try. You're right. You're right. Maybe one of these days. Yes. You can get a pedicure. You can watch TV, sit in a massage chair. It's a lot of fun. So, Sonia, what are your thoughts on uh, visiting a nail salon during the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, James, there's a lot to take in, in terms of policies, procedures, and most critically, health and safety. Okay, well, the rest of this podcast, Sonia and I are going to talk about the CDC document. It's called COVID-19 Employer Information for Nail Salons. First, I want to ask Sonia if she's considered or used a a nail salon during the COVID-19 pandemic. I admit, yes, I did treat myself right before the second wave hit Ontario which was about late August, I felt confident in how the numbers were decreasing and wanted to indulge as others around me had already been a few times. Was it necessary? No, I don't believe so, not during a pandemic. But did it boost morale and help me through the pandemic with a jolt of happy? Absolutely. I have to admit, I went in as a client and not with my scientist hat on. There could have been more precautions I could have taken or initiated by asking questions when I made my appointment before I engaged in the services. And there were some controls in place, but there could have been more. Let's talk about those controls that are listed in the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention document. James? So we're going to talk about engineering controls first. The CDC document does outline a bunch of engineering controls that can be implemented to help prevent the spread of COVID-19. One of the things they talk about is moving, changing, or adjusting workstations to help workers maintain what we all know, social distancing, right? Moving things, adjusting workstations, any way possible to maintain that six feet of distancing between each other and the customers that they're servicing. If you can't maintain that distance, they recommend installing those transparent shields, the plexiglass, which pretty much everyone's familiar with now. They have them everywhere now. Sonia, I'm sure you've seen those everywhere. Everywhere, yep. The grocery stores, the nail salon itself had it, um, even doctor's offices, of course, they're everywhere. They're everywhere now. So those are recommended when distancing is not an option. So they go on to talk about physically separating employees from each other. 
other and customers. They want to include all areas of the salon, break rooms, even parking lots, any entrances and exit areas, because those are the, all these areas where you potentially could get close to someone. They also include using the floor markings, the arrows on the ground, which we're all familiar with those now. You see them in the grocery stores, you see them, you're in line at the bank and they got them outside now. So everyone's familiar with those. And they also recommend closing or limiting access to common areas where workers are likely to gather, such as break room. So they are recommending limiting or you know just closing that area off completely. So another thing I've seen in waiting areas, such as the dentists and doctors, is removing chairs from that waiting area so that clients are not going to be sitting next to each other. So you need to keep those chairs six feet apart. So something else that should have been in place before is what's known as these ventilated tables or portable ventilation units. Sonia, you might be familiar with these ventilated tables. I know what they are. I've seen diagrams, but I haven't actually seen one in use. You're right, James. These are recommended even outside of the COVID era. The ventilation downdraft tables for nail salons, especially for when we're doing work such as buffing or filing nails or using acrylic powder, there's an emission of high dust levels through these processes and they have tiny grinders that help do the job. Without the downdraft tables, a lot of this dust is emitted into the salon area. What I have noticed is in order to rectify, each employee will have a little desk fan, the cute little ones, James, you know, the small little white ones that you can put on your desk. And they're simply dispersing that dust that's being emitted by the process into the common area. So it might be alleviating the immediate exposure to the actual employee, but bystander exposures or the exposures around to other employees and to the clientele is occurring. And while we're on the topic, James, I do want to say as a reminder, if you do have a downdraft table, you should be following the manufacturer's instructions with regards to changing of the filters and catch basins, etc. Okay. Yeah, interesting. If I ever go, I'm going to make sure they have a downdraft table. So moving on, the CDC document says that nail salon owners and managers should work with the building owners or management to increase ventilation. Basically means you're just bringing in more fresh air from the outdoors to dilute the indoor contaminants. That's why restaurants were allowed to have outdoor patios because it reduces the spread of COVID if you have more air. And another point that they include on the CDC document is maintaining the relative humidity at 40 to 60 percent. These higher humidities are known to not transmit the virus. However, in the winter, it would be difficult to maintain this 40 to 60, but if you can get it even up to 30, 35. Okay, Sonia, at this point, I'm going to turn it over to you and you can talk about some administrative controls. Thank you, James. Yeah, I also wanted to mention, actually, seeing as we are on the topic of nail salons, we also want to make sure that we avoid the toxic trio. And by the toxic trio, what we're referring to is toluene, formaldehyde, and dibutyl phthalate. Whenever we speak about nail salons or we're actually engaging or training employees and nail salon owners, this toxic trio comes up often because a lot of the products that are utilized contain these three agents, which are harmful to health. Okay. And I'm assuming in case anyone doesn't know, nail polish, there's a pigment and solvent mixed together. So when the nails are painted... The pigment stays and the solvent evaporates. And this is what Sonia is talking about. Those chemicals are the solvents that are evaporating off the nails. Thanks, James. In terms of the document, in terms of administrative controls, they've labeled it as change the way people work. 
They have 10 bullets on this sheet and uh, we will let you know, you can email us and we'll let you know where to find the document. I'll just go through a few of the bullets that they've listed here. The first one, consider doing daily in-person or virtual phone or video health checks like symptom and or temperature screening of employees before they enter the facility. That goes without saying that should be happening. But what I realized is as a client, they should have asked me similar questions or asked to take my temperature, etc. before I engaged in the service. So the day of the service, but even prior to that, and this is their second bullet, Telephone screen all clients for symptoms of COVID-19. Screening me or asking me questions with regards to if any if I've been around folks who might have had symptoms or might have had COVID, those kinds of questions were not asked. It was simply, when are you available to come in for the appointment? So this is a, another thing that should be involved with the small business owners for nail salons and hair salons. Another thing they mentioned is staggering shifts, start times and break times as much as possible to reduce crowding and make sure that at least six feet distance can be maintained between employees and clients as much as possible. Cleaning and disinfecting. James, I'm going to ask you, what would you rather use, a spray disinfectant or a wet wipe? Well, if we're just talking about a small area, such as where the client sat and rested their arm and at the desk, then definitely a wipe because that's going to eliminate the inhalation hazard of the substance being used. Yes, I have actually received several inquiries at OCAL with regards to having issues with breathing, etc., not understanding. These are these are workers that like at, she was at a grocery store, for example, uh, this one that I'm thinking of. She was having issues and she didn't relate it to the disinfectant. She thought that she thought it was something else at the workplace that had changed during COVID. And we honed it down to the fact that the employer had her using three different disinfectants. She was disinfecting the cash register. She was disinfecting the, the conveyor with a different substance. And then she was disinfecting the paint pendant, you know, the interact machine with a different substance. So her body and she was asthmatic. So the different chemicals that were being used were obviously too overbearing for her. And we had to look at the material safety data sheets to try to get her to be able to work. There are lots of disinfectants that are on the market, but we would point you in the direction of either the Environmental Protection Agency. They have a list of disinfectants that are approved. And also Health Canada also has a list of disinfectants as well. So you can go in and you could look at some of the disinfectants that are available and try to stick within those approved products. So the other thing that needs to be mentioned that people fail to realize is we need to read the labels and follow the instructions on how to use the disinfectant. One of the most important things is to actually clean the surface first before you disinfect the surface by cleaning, removing any debris or any other items that might be on the frequently touched area, and then applying the disinfectant, whether it's a spray or a wipe. So, that's, so Sonia, yes. that Health Canada list does contain a number of products that include quaternary ammonia compounds. However, we've found that based on a lot of the work that we've done at the OCAL clinics, those quaternary ammonia compounds, or quats for short, if someone has asthma, it's going to aggravate their asthma. I, there's a lot of other health effects associated with those. And even though they're on the approved list, they really should not be used. I agree with you, James, and I'm glad you brought this up. Yes, 
the employer should be looking at the list discriminating against certain chemicals that are part of the products that are listed therein and making sure that they're not introducing any asthmogens into their workplace. So this would be a great example of introducing a hazard when you're trying to eliminate another. So thank you, James. That's, that's an excellent point you bring up. Going on with the administrative controls, another thing that I noticed, I don't know if James in Windsor, you've noticed this at any of the shops you've been to or grocery stores, is that they've lifted the, the tap limit for purchases. Anything under 100 was during the pre-COVID times, but now I've realized that I'm allowed to tap over purchases of $100, which makes things a lot easier in terms of having to disinfect my hands post payment, etc. Not everybody is on this route. Not every business has this. But James, have you noticed this in Windsor? Yeah, definitely. I noticed mostly groceries as a kind of that's the only place I've been going lately. One of the other points that they bring up on this list for administrative controls is, of, of course, signage. I have a comment to make about signage. I find that we've put up too many signs on the front doors of businesses or the windows, etc. And I've just become immune to the signage. I noted um, at my son's school, there was maybe, I'd have to say, 12 signs on, on the front door. And I, I had gone in once and the administrative staff asked, did you read all the signs? And I said, yes, but I hadn't. There was just too many to read. So James, do you feel the same way? Absolutely. I know a few places I've gone, you walk up and there's six pages on the door and it's all in small print. Nothing's really highlighted. So I do tend to just, you know, maybe give it a quick glance. And if, if something was really important, I feel like it would be, you know, big and bold. So I tend to just skip over it and walk right in. Yes, that's, that's what I've been doing. I mean, we kind of know what the signage says, wear your face mask, practice social distancing. I think it's become signage overkill. So yes, you should be posting signs up to warn or alert your clientele, but try to keep it simple so that folks are actually going to read the sign. Uh, James, I'm going to pass it over to you now. Moving on to PPE or personal protective equipment. For Sonia and I, we were using that all the time, PPE in our field. It's well known now. However, PPE is for when engineering and administrative controls aren't enough. So they're a last resort. Okay, so the CDC document does classify nail salon workers as a medium exposure risk category. This is because they have frequent and or close contact, so within that six feet of their customers. So this means that they need to wear some combination of gloves, gown or smock, a face covering, and or face shield or goggles. They need to be fully protected. It's important to note that these cloth face coverings don't substitute for actual respirators, okay? So a respirator is used to capture contaminants where these cloth face coverings aren't going to capture, for example, solvents that we talked about earlier from coming in. So if someone's normally required to wear respiratory protection, they still need to wear it. So all other PPE that they wore before, they still need to wear. So the next thing they talk about is uh, wearing gloves and making sure those are changed between each client. And then right away after those gloves are taken off, hands have to be washed or sanitized. Workers should also be provided with enough clean smocks to put a new one on between each client. They should also be trained how to take on and put off the PPE items. It's important so they don't contaminate themselves while taking these items on and off. I'm going to pass it over to Sonia, and that's on education and training. Thank you, James. I just wanted to put a plug in with regards to the donning and doffing of the personal protective equipment. 
I think the most important is, yes, A, we should be wearing it as um, clients or customers, if you will, as well as employees and employers. But so knowing how to put on the equipment is one thing, but taking it off is, is where you could be exposing yourself if you don't know how to take the equipment off properly. I notice people, you know, at the grocery store, returning to their cars, the way they're taking off their mask or and or hanging the mask on the rearview mirror, leaving it in the car and reusing it. I cringe when I see that. I just wanted to give you a few pointers. And if you wish, we can send you a fact sheet on how to properly don and doff the personal protective equipment. It comes from the Centers for Disease Control as well. With regards to gloves, when you're removing your gloves, you have to understand that your gloves are contaminated. When you're ready to take them off with whatever's on the surface, they are contaminated. So you need to use a gloved hand grasping the palm area of the other gloved hand and peel off the first glove and peel it off so such that it turns inside out and then you discard it in the garbage. Then you slide the fingers of the ungloved hand under the remaining glove at wrist level and peel off the second glove over, peel it off, and then you, you throw that into the dustbin. And then you can disinfect or if you can, wash your hands immediately. And in terms of taking off the mask or the respirator, you have to understand the front of your mask or respirator is contaminated. So don't touch that. And if your hands get contaminated during mask or respirator removal, please go ahead and wash or hand sanitize. But what you should be doing is grasping the ties or the elastics of the mask, the, the loop around your ears, both at the same time, Move, remove the mask away from your face and discard it. In terms of um, finally training, there's only four bullets that the CDC lists here. It speaks to what we just spoke about. Workers should be educated to avoid touching their faces, including their eyes, noses, and mouths, particularly until after they have thoroughly washed their hands. Second bullet talks about communication and training. It should be easy to understand in preferred languages, and they do emphasize the use of infographics. Topics should include, but not limited to, signs and symptoms of infection, staying home when ill, social distancing, hand hygiene, etc. And training again should be reinforced with signs, preferably infographics. So that's all they have for that section, James. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it can be a lot to take in for a workplace when they haven't really done a lot of these things before, but it's all very important. Exactly. And you have us to rely on. The Occupational Health Clinics for Ontario Workers is always available to you. We are a not-for-profit organization. We don't charge for our services. So if you ever get stuck or you're not sure how to handle a health and safety situation or a health-related situation, do call upon us and we can point you in the right direction or give you the information you need. Yes, definitely. Well, that concludes our first ever podcast. Please let us know if there's any other topics you would like us to cover in the future. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. For more information about this podcast, including show notes and companion materials, go to our website, www.ohcow.on.ca. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast channel to ensure you receive notification of our latest episode. As well, check us out on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you for joining us.